So with that, I guess for the sake of the interview, uh, we'll, we'll at least the at least rehash the part of um, you know you were talking about lessons learned and and whatnot, and uh, you know we we find ourselves I think nowadays especially you know having lessons um, that have been repeated again and again over the last 10, 20 years, uh, and yet people still having a hard time ingesting it. So when we talk about the Pentagon Papers, we're talking about how the papers came out and you get this immediate the generals had no idea what was going on the commanders in the field had no idea why we were over there except where you and i were at least from what we saw on a day-to-day basis it seemed like we did have a mission at the localized level we were working with what we believed to be the key leaders of the area the villagers we were doing security operations we were trying to make it a safer place for them we were trying to find ways to stimulate them economically right um that felt meaningful that felt important and then you know we we see this come out and and so where does that disparity come from like let's start in country you know um how does it come to be that we are seemingly guided and yet our commanders at the very top had no idea why we were there yeah it's an extremely complicated and large question and uh, i was actually impressed to find out i did not know that you were in iraq Real quick, when were you in Iraq and where were you in Iraq, if that's okay? I was Fallujah 2007 to 2008 and then Ramadi 2008 to 2009. Excellent, excellent. The uh, the reason that I do kind of want to highlight that is to understand the Afghanistan papers, it all depends on where you entered into the global war on terror. Now, both of us were fairly young when 9-11 itself took place. But a standout event for me about leadership not understanding what is truly going on, before I went to Afghanistan, I was in Iraq, and I was in the, you know, the Sunni triangle of death, and I clearly, distinctly remember the day that Dick Cheney told America that the Iraqi insurgency was in its last throes. That was 2005, and that was not true. So, yeah, the disconnect between senior leadership and what was happening on the ground, you almost don't need the Afghanistan papers to start to describe this this disconnect that we both felt. Uh, I got to ask, what what were your early experiences? If you can remember any early experiences where you were like, I don't think senior leadership knows what's going on. You know, I, I, when you say that, I felt pretty insulated because when I got in, uh, it was during the time of the surge, right? Mm-hmm. So I, my experience was kind of in alignment with the messaging at that time. I go in, it's part of the surge. Um, my, my unit gets there on the ground and working directly with leaders. Um, at the time, I was, my, my unit was working with Sheikh uh, Sitar Abu Risha, and um, we were working to, uh, you know, obviously make Iraq a better place, right? But it seemed like (laughs) everything was coinciding. The momentum was high. There were a lot of people that were really engaged. It wasn't a super dangerous time in Fallujah at at this point. And and, uh, obviously it was for him because he ended up getting assassinated. But it it seemed like the momentum and what the government talked about matched for me. So I actually had a different experience than you when it came to that. Excellent. And then we both were in Afghanistan together and we both quite often, you know, sometimes we would have our nose to the grindstone trying to facilitate key leader engagements and try to understand the human terrain over there. But quite often the the nuance of what we saw on the ground didn't make its way to the top. And even the nuance on the ground 
that we were given by a local population who did not speak the same language as us, did not share culture, did not share civil norms, what we were gleaning from them probably didn't match their lives at all. So No, probably not. And I, I'm sure there was a lot of disparity when it came to what we were trying to do and what they actually needed or wanted, right? Maybe they were placating us because we were giving them gratuitous amounts of money. Um, mm. You know, so they were playing nice because at the end of the day, a few people in the village got their houses padded quite nicely uh, by U.S. dollars. But, you know, in spite of that, um, you know, what met part of that message wasn't getting to the top. I remember some meetings we had with, you know, the colonel where we were working and that they were regularly briefed on what was going on. Very often that commander was engaged himself with key leaders. Um, so what between him and the people in that Afghanistan papers, what wasn't being communicated? Or was he just trying to do something because he was there? Yeah, um, when it comes to command, you know, the command structure, commanders look down upon what they are responsible for. And they quite often report good news up while trying to take care of their own household. And that really does, that's, that that reaches across all societies. That reaches across all norms. <laughs> if you if, if you own a McDonald's franchise, you try to fix things in house before you report to corporate that you know the fryer is broken or whatever. Like Absolutely. I can fix that. I'll take care of that. That that doesn't need to go up to corporate yet. But um, in respect to Afghanistan, and you, you you touched on something that was really important that you know those of us that were in country didn't quite know about. But somebody looking at the big picture was able to identify is the Afghans don't get it twisted. They are a smart people and they noticed that certain dollar amount projects would automatically get approval from local command structure. But high dollar products would have to go up higher and get approved by someone else. And I can't remember exactly what the dollar amount was. It's open source. It always has been. But um, all of a sudden, it didn't matter if you were building a well, building a school, or fixing a handicap ramp. It always cost, for example, $15,000. Because any local, you know, O3 could approve a $15,000 project. And all of a sudden, every project cost $15,000. And corruption was well known. I think it, it was kind of, we, it was just accepted, right? It, it wasn't, we didn't try to fight it necessarily outright. Because we knew that, hey, we're going to deal with a certain level of it if we want to get shit done. That's just the culture. That's these people. You know, we saw it in Iraq, too. Yeah, a lot of these people are smuggling cigarettes and other items. But at the end of the day, they are at the same time fighting for good things within their region. Um, so was that, you know, is that the case? Was it we just accepted it or was it worse than we actually realized? In, in gangster terminology, I believe it is referred to as the cost of doing business. Mm -hmm. um, I'm sure Afghanistan and Iraq both have their own terminology for it. But greasing the palms of everyone involved is, is common culture. Um, I can clearly recall various corporate training in which, you know, we weren't told that we should give bribes to people. But if the Somali, you know, taxi driver asks for more money than, you know, the rate is supposed to be just just give the taxi driver more money like this. Right. You're not you're not going to save the world by preventing five dollars worth of grift in a third world country. You're being ridiculous. So, yeah, exactly. Well, do you think that well, we were putting 
um, that kind of get back to when it comes to what the commanders wanted. Let's talk about the higher level, right? Uh, sure, we, we wanted democracy for Afghanistan, right? But let's jump back to the early part of the war. The way that the U.S. went into it is, I think, a way that most people can be completely okay with. And that is the U.S. was, they took Karzai, who was a very great and powerful force um, when trying to fight the Taliban. So Karzai, we see him as a leader. He gets elected. Afghanistan has their first, you know, real democratic process. It's a very great uh, milestone for the country, right? Karzai takes power. Uh, and then the U.S. says, it's up to you to do this, buddy. We are going to prevent some conflict, but we're not doing nation building. We're not doing any of that, right? But then we get to where we are now. Um, so I, let's start with a little bit of background in that we got distracted by Iraq. We had this moment, and then we turn our, our, our sights away, and that gave a lot of time for the Taliban to become a really big problem again for AQI or uh, Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan to, to become a, a significant problem. So talk to me about the mission, the scope creep of that and when Afghanistan started to get out of hand. Mm, I definitely got to say that uh, I was not personally there when Afghanistan started to get out of hand, but that that stretch of time where we took our eyes off the ball of going after al-qaeda and securing the battle space in afghanistan and you know deciding that iraq was more important uh god it's 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 a it's a difficult gordian knot to cut because i don't know where exactly to start because if we told afghanistan that we weren't interested in nation building and we didn't do any nation building then where did we go wrong? But at the same time, too, like uh, Hamid Karzai, we installed him as the co co uh, coalition provisional authority, if I recall correctly. And then he most certainly won their democratic elections. But when his time was up, uh, if I recall, you and I were both there, or at least close to the time, that there was definitely going to be a transition of power. And... I actually think the transition of power went quite well. Is that is that your experience? Is that your recollection? Yeah, no, I don't remember there being too many uh, significant issues with that transition. Um, I think it's just what was going on around it. And that seems to be what the commanders were having an issue with was, okay, we're doing this transition of power. We weren't even supposed to be involved this heavily in the government governance, but now we're running security operations across the country. We're still doing the main mission of eradicating the Taliban, which is kind of our fault that it was able to come back. Um, but did they, was it the lack of seeing a way out? Like where, when are we supposed to leave? Like what's the end date? Because traditionally Afghanistan is not a one united culture. It's a tribal society and it's always been rife with conflict. You know, the, the Northern Alliance that was fighting against the Taliban were two enemies that decided, okay, we're going to team up now because we need to, we need to kick the, uh, the Taliban's ass because they're taking over Afghanistan and turning it into this medieval Islamic state. Um, so, you know, is is that maybe more the focus where the, the commanders didn't see that that actual goal, that finite thing that says, hey, this is it, this is the end? Yeah, I think, uh, I think that actually is a problem with our military culture is that we don't actually know how to leave a country. 
like we're still in Germany, which I enjoy. I love going to our German military bases. I love going to our military bases in Japan, you know, Djibouti, Africa, less so. <laughs> but we we once we put a foothold somewhere, we try to be a force for good, of course. But other than Vietnam and the, you know, the catastrophe that that was like, we don't know how to leave. You know, if we're losing, we're going to stay. If we win, we're going to stay. And people like Al Qaeda and Taliban had no problem communicating that to the local populace. And I never had a narrative that I could sell to the local populace that countered American military doctrine for over 100 years. I didn't have anything. So when you engaged with them, they actually believed we were going to be a continuous occupation? I'll, and even so, like, I'm not going to read their minds. Mm -hmm. But once again, I'll, I'll describe my experience with a collateral experience. Mm -hmm. The Afghans, we asked them as a nation, I'm almost positive this is in the book Charlie Wilson's War, that uh, we told them, I'm like, hey, you know, the Russians are kind of starting to chill. They're, they're, they're leaving your country so you can stop attacking them every single day. And guys like the Northern Alliance and, you know, uh, who we consider current villains like uh, the um, uh, Haqqani Network, they looked us dead in the eye and they said, we will shoot at the Russians until they are no longer here. And the, uh, the, uh, the, the last recorded death of a Russian soldier in Afghanistan is a Russian soldier, I believe, on a tank leaving Afghanistan. He, he stuck his head out of a turret. And somebody shot him. That might be a myth, but that's that's the story that I heard. And if you go to a country like Afghanistan and you tell them, "Don't worry, we're only going to be here until all the problems are solved," they're they're just not going to believe you. And I think that might be one of the cruxes of the issue, right? Like, let's say that in in truth, the commanders believe, "Hey, we are going to do that once we've installed a stable government." All right. Um, is that too nebulous, the idea of installing a democracy and then knowing a point where to leave? Like, is it, is that, ever, especially when you have an active conflict? Definitely, definitely. I mean, if you told me that that's what U.S. policy is, I couldn't give you an example of when we've done that, so... Uh, that's very true. Um, you know, I, I like the examples when you talk about, you know, yeah, we haven't left Japan. Uh, you haven't left Germany um, on a kind of an aside away from Afghanistan relation uh, to those things. Do you think that's more because we've realized that it's very valuable to us as the. As we've taken on this world police kind of, you know, position over the last, you know, 80 years or so um, that we've just realized, hey, it's really great to have a foothold around the world like this. I believe that that is, uh, well, you can actually almost draw that all the way back to the Truman Doctrine, that the world is a safer place if the United States is involved in the world at large. Mm -hmm. You know, the formation of the United Nations is because after World War I, the League of Nations just failed. Just people didn't buy in, so it didn't work. And World War II was a reasonable, you know, follow-on event 
to World War One not being resolved responsibly by the global community. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the it's 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 almost hard coded in our uh, processes and our standard SOP that if we go somewhere and we put a foothold there, I mean, obviously we should stay there and just continue to help that population. And that's not what every population on the planet wants. No. And if we, we take it to a little more uh, nefarious aspect, right? Um, I don't think the military industrial complex was really at play in the early days of Afghanistan. Like I said, we were focused. We had a mission. We weren't there just to, you know, war hawk. Uh, but then Iraq comes and we can definitely apply that, that MIC uh, pretty heavily to a lot of aspects of that war. Um, and that it's like when we turned our focus back to Afghanistan, that came right along with it. It was another theater we were starting to build up operations in again, and everything got attached to it. New technologies, new um, you know, methodologies, et cetera, getting embedded in how we are operating in Afghanistan. Uh, do you think that played a role in the continuation of the war? Uh, the continuation of the war in Afghanistan, uh, we're getting into those first two or three years of the Obama administration where he worked with guys like Stan McChrystal and McRaven to do the Afghanistan surge, which upon review was almost entirely a Helmand province surge, Mm -hmm. which was almost entirely a Karachi district region surge. And okay, I see a smile. I'm not sure if everyone's watching, but I feel like we, you know, we both have some similar, uh, some assessments of that, but it was just like, we from 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 even just a, a layman's opinion of Afghanistan, if you can keep Highway One from Kabul to Kandahar safe enough to travel, you can have reasonable economic output from Afghanistan because from there that landlocked country can get product to India, can get product to Pakistan, can get product to China and have some form of you know, gross domestic product. But Helmand province, man, I, I love them. But the, the focus of the Afghanistan surge d- didn't make sense in any way other than to try to hit the Taliban where we thought they were. We thought they were next to Kandahar. So we went next to Kandahar, which was Helmand. And like, like you've said more than once, like, okay, and then what? What did senior leadership want to do, even if we were able to get that region completely under control? Military isn't good at improv. There's no uh, yes mm. and. Exactly. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, so Afghanistan, we know. Let, let's uh, uh, wind back a lot and let's talk about that that disparity again. So, you know, what what do you believe that the mission was what did you believe the overall mission was when you were um in uh, helmand um i fortunately was not in helmand and quick you know re uh correction there kajaki not karachi karachi is okay. actually in in pakistan but it's kajaki where you know there was a huge hydroelectrical dam that we were never able to get working over in helmand province which mm-hmm. could have been an economic boom but unfortunately, if we had gotten that dam fixed, it would have been an economic loss to every tribe and region uh, down river from it. So there was a there was a lot of motivation to to never get that hydroelectrical dam in Kajaki district working. 
But um, yeah, uh, for like Helmand Province, I mean, the United States Marine Corps was in control and responsible for that area for the majority of the time. And the mission that they were given, they did a great job at. Mm -hmm. But did that mission have an end state that could be reached? Hopefully enough people understand that the Afghanistan papers that were released, are we looking at one year ago? Right. Uh, December. Yeah. Almost a year. Yeah. Almost. Yeah. Those those should make it quite clear that if anyone knew of a desired end state, no one knew how to get there. So did you feel good about your time when you were there, when you were actually working? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, the uh, the global war on terror is going to be one of the most defining things about our generation. Uh, be you Gen X, millennial, zennial or whatever. This is this is defining, you know. However long we look down the road, if anyone's going to ask us any questions about what we did at this time, I'm at least going to have some answers. You know, I'm not going to be like, ah, I stuck with my job at U-Haul. No disrespect. I enjoyed my job at U-Haul. But I, uh, I, did, I did look at the world from U-Haul and I said, I need to go and be a part of what is happening. Whether or not I agree with invading Iraq, whether or not... I think we'll ever, you know, establish democracy in Afghanistan. This is what I'm going to be a part of. Right. Uh, I, I definitely appreciated my time over there. I, like I said, one of my one of my reasons for this conversation is the fact that um, I felt like we were doing something good on that ground level. You know, when we, you know, we might have been opening up those schools and, um, you know, someone might have been skimming off the top. But at the end of the day, it seemed like we were doing something right, like that we were giving them a bit of infrastructure that was hopefully going to educate them and, and help them grow. We build a new hospital. And now, you know, when when people are getting sick, like they're they're getting some higher standard of medical care. Uh, it felt like we were helping, even if it wasn't achieving some specific end goal. And that seems to be the problem is that these commanders felt there was no end goal except that nebulous finishing of this democracy within Afghanistan. Well, and, you know, an, an additional very important end goal for every commander is to protect their own people. Yes. You know, and whatever their ETA or not ETA date, whatever their 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 redeployment date was, was an important day. Mm -hmm. You want to make sure that you get everybody home safe. You know, that's that like if a commander told you that that was their priority one and you argued with them, you were you were an idiot. That's yep. every commander's number one priority. So, yeah, that's a tough one. But I also wanted to say, just because you mentioned helping build schools and whatnot, uh, if you get a chance, and maybe you already have done so, um, I read Malayla Yousaf's book about her, her life. And there are several chapters in that book where I'm like, I remember exactly where I was when that happened in Swat Valley. I remember exactly where I was when Malayla Yousaf was, you know, Mm -hmm. giving this speech once she once she was uh recovered from her from the just heinous attacks that the taliban of pakistan committed against her and like i want to be able to say that i want to be like say like yep i i know exactly what i was doing when that happened so yeah i um i actually want to uh read that book now i i haven't <laughs> read that i i had not um wow uh yeah so what about what are what's a lesson when you look back in Afghanistan? Obviously, we're still there, right? But when you look back at the last nineteen years of Afghanistan, what's your number one lesson that you hope that America learns um, in future engagements? 
Yeah, I mean, the 19-year history, that's a, that's a lot to take in. You know, you can, you can be serving in the military today, and you were, you were not alive when 9-11 took place. Um, I, transparency would be a lot better. I would, I would definitely appreciate that. Something that I think that Robert Gates said very well is that we've tried to apply a military solution to everything when diplomatic solutions were necessary and we don't have a diplomatic force. So that would, that would be something that I would, I would just, you know, strongly recommend. And I mean, I don't know if we're trying to make this too directly topical to domestic policy, but American law enforcement is a is an organization that has certain purposes but we've tried to apply it to so many problems that do not meet a law enforcement criteria so many problems in afghanistan cannot be met by a military criteria we're just you just can't make a hammer do something other tools are designed to do and i do a lot of home repair i have tried you cannot use a hammer for everything so the problems Afghanistan has need to be solved with tools designed for those problems. And if that means micro loans to small businesses trying to develop economic output, be it, you know, agriculture, textiles or whatever, like that's awesome. But like, you know, forcing people to bend to bend to the will that will provide them the security to do eventually that nebulous thing. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's going to work. So, I, I think one of the difficulties there, because we did when, when we were, um, when we were, we were there together, we did have certain organizations that were working to help, especially with agriculture and whatnot, right? Um, but I don't, I don't see when there's still the active enemy combatant. I see it as being very difficult to have them working without the, at the very least, military presence. But I think that becomes an issue because of the military presence and the view of that, the optics of it as, you know, continued occupation of a hostile force, um, it's going to provoke them to attack and then conflict has to engage and we then have to fight that. Um, so do you, do you see it as possible for those organizations to work uh, without a military presence? In my experience with Afghanistan, the local Afghans do seem to be able to arm themselves against reasonable threats that they face. Uh, obviously, if a highly trained, you know, detachment of Al-Qaeda's finest descend upon the district, no, I don't expect them to be able to handle that. But at the same time, too, I mean, when the American colonies were forming here on this continent, you know, if the British had been like, you can't get rid of us yet. We got to protect you from those Native Americans you've been having all those troubles with. Like, we'd have looked at them like they were crazy. We'd have been like, you're not even using the taxes on the tea for that. So, of course, we're going to tell you to leave, you know. And, like, I don't, I don't really know if the Afghan people are that familiar with the American Revolution, but... The idea of foreigners promising to protect you, it's, it's a hard sell. That's just a hard sell. I Like short of an invading force that I know that I cannot handle, it's, it's a real hard sell, I think. Do you think our problem pulling out was 
ego related or do you think it was the fear of Iraq where we removed a power broker, created a power vacuum and greatly destabilized a region. And so a fear that leaving Afghanistan at any point, it's like we know we, we, we've got our finger in the dam and we, we have no way to repair it. But we know the moment we pull that finger out, something may very well break. No, that's a that's a that's a legitimate fear, but at the same time, too, um, your finger in the dam doesn't fix a broken dam, you know. So um, that's like some of it is is partially ego driven, but it also does have to do with if your number one priority as the commander is to keep your people safe, then that is completely unintentionally going to hinder the effort to fix that broken dam right. right you 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 can't you can't do both at the same time you just you just kind of can't and there's there's no real reason to believe that you can fix the broken dam anyway that's that's probably that's probably why your finger is in the dam in the first place is you don't know how to fix the dam so um <laughs> a little <laughs> a little bit of the uh yeah because i I'm not a plumber. I'm, I, I was never in the Corps of Engineers for the uh, United States military, but I, I'm, I know that a finger in the dam doesn't fix it. But um, we, uh, we, we stayed in Afghanistan because we didn't know how to leave because we don't know how to leave. In a, lot of, in a lot of cases, we just simply don't know how to leave. And there's an old saying, I believe it's most certainly associated with Vietnam, is that no one wants to be the last person to die for what will one day be considered an unnecessary war. And like, yeah, it's 100 percent true. So talking about the, the global war on terror, right? I, I that's still something that's very much an issue. Um, it, even if we pull out of Afghanistan, it, we don't stop having to deal with that. Right. Um, what is something that, you know, now or something you foresee uh, being one of the primary issues that America and the Western world is going to have to deal with when it comes to terror outside of Afghanistan? Uh, I hate to say it, but it's cyber terror. It's uh, the threats that we will face are the threats that we don't know about, you know, because if we've already figured out how to prevent something from happening, the, 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 uh, the asymmetric warfare frame of mind is for them to do something else. And uh, we've, we've most certainly got a lot of enemies around the world. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, uh, predict the prediction game is difficult. It's it's something that we'll have to be vigilant about, and it's something that we'll have to, you know, study the lessons learned. Like we're 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 going into Syria from time to time, and I even oh, I'm trying to remember which uh, we we lost we lost American service members in Somalia recently too, mm -hmm. and you know you look at that and you're like, I didn't. I didn't know that was a thing right now. Like, how did we lose guys in Somalia? Why did we lose guys in Chad? You know, so it's gosh, I, I don't I don't want to tell you what I think is going to happen next because I just simply I don't know. You know, all all predictive models are wrong and some of them are useful. I I can't I can't make any prediction like that. It's it's a very difficult situation. Like, do we see. Um, boots on the ground retaliation tomahawk missiles from those cruise ships um, uh, because of or not cruise ships but cruise missiles from the ships uh, unless you know we have some secret ones that are outfitted for Royal Caribbean that I'm unaware of but 
do you see that do we see that type of retaliation for cyber attacks you know is do we see like a cyber cold war coming on the in the future where it's a constant threat of some serious destruction um for our cyber infrastructure um what places are we screwing with now that's the other thing is that you know a lot of what's happened in the middle east was precipitated by you know united states actions in the central intelligence agency in the 50s um i think if i were to think where can we go the furthest back from u.s involvement i would say it was the uh 1950s election that we messed with uh via the cia um and i think that had the ripple effect of eventually affecting the iranian revolution um and our involvement in afghanistan obviously precipitated you know the rise of al-qaeda and the mujahideen from then turning into the um what we've had to deal with lately there's a lot of there are a lot of hands and there are a lot of pots and it's not just the middle east and it's not just terrorism uh we took our war on drugs to afghanistan uh you know the um that was a huge part of it you know we were burning crops trying to get them to grow corn instead of this multi-billion dollar plant opium yeah. you know weed it grew like a yep. weed yeah we we tried to force them to cultivate a plant in an arid desert that requires temp you know like Opium grew like a weed. You, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not telling any secrets, but mm -hmm. you couldn't, you couldn't land a plane in most of Afghanistan, and that airfield wasn't surrounded by poppies because poppies are weeds. So, yeah, that and marijuana too. Um, a lot of, uh, but we we brought our ideals when it came to that. Now, I think that's a, you know, it's a huge discussion for another time. Except for the fact that when you're talking about where's it going to come from next. You know, we've been involved since the late 70s and 80s uh, in South America, Central America, when it comes to the drug trade. Uh, it's something that the U.S. is always focusing on. And it doesn't have to be a counterterrorism act that ends up leading to the next issue. Right. And, and even more importantly, you know, a large portion of our job was to put ourselves in the mind of the enemy. And I'll tell you right now, the enemy is 100 percent convinced everything bad that has ever happened to their culture is the fault of the united states like that's that's the reality to them so uh it is and, it, and it's unfortunate that our handling of certain things in iraq and afghanistan alone has helped to fuel that idea that we you know we have screwed up we have caused issues um i was listening to a podcast the other day about the uh you know the hunt for osama bin laden and whatnot um, do you feel that our our allegiances that kind of led to some international assistance when it came to our fight of Al Qaeda and whatnot? Do you think those are being harmed over the last few years of international policy? Um, wait, let me let me make sure I understand the question correctly. We're talking about how we used to supply arms to certain people and we later found out they fell into the hands of al-qaeda oh, yeah, or yeah uh, let me let me rephrase that because we went all over the place with it um so i, I was listening to uh, a discussion about the hunt for osama and the international players that were involved and the support that we got for that um but now we've had obviously uh, the last four years have been kind of tumultuous when it comes to the way america is viewed on the international stage um do you think those policies from the president and the way we are perceived now, it would negatively impact uh, any future efforts to combat terrorism on the global stage. 
Okay. Okay. So we're 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 zeroing in on what other countries think of what the United States has done in the last three years. Is is what I'm hearing, right? Yep. It's actually quite amazing because you almost have to do a country to country assessment of that. For Japan, our unusual, I believe it has been described as a fairy tale relationship with North Korea. Like that terrifies Japan. Japan looks at us and it's just like, what are you doing? And whereas we don't talk about it, but uh, the current administration has bombed Yemen and Somalia to degrees that we have never seen. And no one talks about it. But if you asked uh, someone from Somalia what their current opinion of the United States was, it would it would not be good. So you almost have to go country by country and be, well, this is probably what this country thinks of this right now. This is probably what this country thinks of this right now. Germany probably feels betrayed because I don't know if it's actually happened or not, but we keep threatening to pull our military forces out of Germany. You know, it's 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 it is not a unified foreign policy at all. Like if we had an overarching strategy that the world could critique, mm-hmm. I could answer that. But it's a it's a it's a case by case word I will not use on your podcast because <laughs> I am polite. Uh, well, I mean. But that speaks to the issue that it's not just actions and active policy that has an impact on the way we're viewed on this global stage. It's the rhetoric. So when uh, the president does go up and he gets on his podium and he just kind of riffs from the mouth, I Mm -hmm. I imagine that those comments are having a genuine impact. And if you're saying that, you know, like Japan being terrified of our relation now, that was obviously a little more active policy, but... Trump gets on the stage all the time and talks about how excited it was, you know, and how buddy-buddy he is with Kim Jong-un. I think, uh, do you hear that story about Trump saying that uh, the former press secretary was going to have to take one for the team? I I am familiar with that story. It is in her own memoirs. So I, uh, I, uh, it's a, I believe we would classify that as a uh, single source reporting. But the single source does have <laughs> does have quite a bit of credibility, and it does uh, it does in fact fit uh, the modus operandi of the person in in question. So I tried to keep my composure for that one for a minute, but I mean, it's like <laughs> that's a shoe yeah. that really just looks very much Trump sized. Right? Yeah. Because I mean, if you told me that story, and the person in question was Barack Obama, George W. Bush. Like Bill Clinton's like a maybe, but like George H.W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter, none of those guys, not even back to Nixon. None of them would have said that. But the current the current president, absolutely. And and that is actually something that is quite, quite profound to to kind of, you know, like you and I, we know how to assess what the president of the United States is saying. Mm hmm. Other countries don't necessarily know his background, and that is dangerous because in, in, in proper times, if the president of the United States says that the world should do X, the world either needs to get on board or get out of the way. Now, that's, that's a little egotistical. I agree. But, you know, we've, we've usually got better ideas, so... But when when every single day it's a different idea with a different focus, with a different 
almost impossible to understand agenda other than, hey, I'm going to make other people feel bad. You know, like, for mm -hmm. example, I'm going to make the, uh, my own press secretary feel bad. Like, if that's the only motivation that you can glean from a head of state, there's a problem. There's, there's a huge problem with that being their agenda. I really liked uh, former President Fox uh, of Mexico. Um, he made a little meme video, some some jabs taken at Trump. I, he's, he's done that a few times over the years, right? But he said something, and he says, America, get your shit, something to the effect of America, get your shit together. We look up to you. Please vote for Biden. I think it was that. I think he actually threw something about voting for Biden in there. Um, but that kind of hit in a, a good but somber way, like the idea that there are people that still want America to, to get out of whatever funk we're in. So that we can, you know, because even over the years with the fuck ups, I think that I like to believe that our country is still um, symbolic of something good in the in the world on the on the global stage. And it's it's hard to kind of uh, believe that we're living up to it when we have the, the figurehead of our nation um, speaking in such a way. Yeah, it's not easy. And um, it, it's uh, it's something that honestly has been true for a very long time is. A lot of countries do, in fact, love Americans, but they abjectly hate and oppose our policies. And you can you can point Iran is actually a perfect example of that. Ira the Iranian people will definitely tell you that they hate American foreign policy. But I, I got bad news. They love Coca-Cola like they they love all sorts of things about about American culture. They uh, they just wish we weren't, you know meddling in their business and they have been respectfully brainwashed by their theological madmen in charge so it's uh it's complicated like we're not always the bad guy but we don't get a free pass either right is, is one way to say it uh the late anthony bourdain had a really good episode on iran and he uh, oh, yeah he went there and um unfortunately the the fixer that he had or one of the people he spoke with actually got you know, disappeared by the Iranian government after it. Um, but I mean, but it gave a really good insight. So if you guys are watching and you uh, you want a really good look at what it's like in Iran as far as their perspectives on life and whatnot and, and their views on America, it's it's a really good episode. Um, but it's something that's bothersome when it comes to the power of the president over the people is that can you imagine what would have happened in fact, there was a lot of outrage about Barack Obama when it came to the troops. But could you imagine if Barack Obama had, had ever called a prisoner of war a loser for getting caught or had you know, been alleged to have said um, the horrible things that have been alleged about Trump uh, within the last couple of weeks? Um, I can't imagine any Republican back then uh, being OK with that and not looking, you know, looking for outrage when it comes to that. But I'm hearing a lot of silence when it comes from trump it's yeah that's that's definitely true um and the, the most important thing about that too is that just like i said with his comments about sarah huckabee sanders it it you cannot be surprised by it there's there's no reason to be surprised by it at all the the man who he described like something as his vietnam right like didn't he describe i can't remember you know this quote yeah, like this is this is not out of character. This is not the secrets about Donald Trump that we didn't kind of already know. Mm -hmm. But he picked he picked fights with gold star families 
before he was elected. He he picked fights with John McCain before he was elected. Right. Like, I mean, I I am very excited to hear more of what Jim Mathis has to say when the warrior monk decides to tell us. But he, Jim Mathis, you know, doesn't speak often, but he he told us all that he, Donald Trump is the first president in my memory that has tried to divide our nation as opposed to unite us. That's that's huge. That's crazy. But if you look at everything Donald Trump has ever done, it's not a surprise. No, I, I think what surprised me more was at this point wasn't that Trump made those comments. It's that the people that are in lockstep with him and, and at the very least not questioning it. Uh, it's just that's bother, bothersome. But you're absolutely right with uh, with uh, Mad Dog Mattis. It's um, <laughs> I you know, there was I don't know if this is scuttlebutt, but there was the the rumor that he was passed up for commandant of the Marine Corps because he was way too hawkish and Obama didn't want that, um, which is kind of believable. Uh, but mm -hmm. when you have, you know, someone like that who gets to be sec def, uh, it seems like a really great president in some regard for him to be under someone that would kind of, you know, let him loose a little bit. Right. Um, as long as he's not criticizing Trump on the open stage. Uh, but for him to, to back down on a, play, a platform where he would have had a lot of free reign, uh, that speaks, I think, a lot with regard to one, his integrity as a as a leader, and two, you know, like you said, that's something where we should be raising eyebrows. Where we should have raised eyebrows a long time ago. Um, you know, the the how many more people have to leave Trump's cabinet and say this is why it's that guy. Here's the problem. When up until that point, they were ardent supporters. You know, singing his praise. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm ranting now. But every time I watch a briefing that has a bunch of people with him sitting around a table and every time they go person to person and they have to suck them off. Oh, I'm sorry. Professionalism. Every time they have to like make really put a mark. Yeah. Put a little mark on the timestamp there. Clap. Yeah. Yeah. You can, you can, you can clack that one. Um, <laughs> but they have to go down the line and they have to give, you know, some sort of, I'm so honored to be here. Mr. President, you're doing the best. Blah, blah, blah. I don't remember every, anyone giving this kind of just, disgusting um oh what's the word i'm looking for uh it's sycophant. sycophant yes yeah. yeah yeah whatever the verb for sycophant is yeah mm -hmm. but um i will because you took an opportunity to take a, a sip of your drink there um i'll point out that jim mathis refused to do it like there's a very famous clip where donald trump does the the praise me roundtable and jim mathis like literally like <laughs> kind of stops writing and like looks up and goes I could not be prouder to support our men and women in the service of our great nation in a military capacity. And that, and then he like just goes right back to taking note <laughs> and it's like, Whoa, <laughs> oh, I love that man. I do look forward to a memoir. If he ever is to drop one, I really hope he, I hope he does. Oh, I'm sure it's a thousand pages already. It's just on his computer. If we can just, do you have friends at anonymous or, or one of those that can just, Get into Jim Mattis's computer. Just leak it. I... If you can cut cut that out, just cut that out. Yeah, <laughs> uh, do you? Uh, how do you feel about the Woodward uh, announcement? The the release. Uh, the book is out. I haven't had a chance to read it, but obviously I've seen the the footnotes or the cliff notes that everyone else has. Yeah. Um. The Woodward. Uh. So far, the um. I think, I think my favorite 
um, understanding of this Woodward stuff is that there's always like the first conversation that like it was bad that Donald Trump was lying to the country, right? But then there's like the second and third conversation where it's like, well, how dare Bob Woodward not tell us that Donald Trump was lying to the country? You know, it's just like, hold on. How did how did we turn the investigative journalist into the bad guy? That's 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 some amazing spin right there. And like if you're if you're like us and you've you know, you've 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 fleshed out your profiles of individuals and the headline is Donald Trump lies to country like I don't that headline alone doesn't tell me what day of the year it is. It doesn't tell me anything. So Bob Woodward withholding that information for a couple of months on this particular topic, like it, it it's not a it's not a controversy to me. Mm-hmm. I'm also not surprised that that Donald Trump did what he did because I was able to read the same assessments from the World Health Organization and the CDC. Mm-hmm. And if you were able to look at what literally everyone else on the planet was saying and what guys like Bolsonaro in Brazil and Donald Trump in the United States were saying, and you couldn't identify which people were downplaying the threat, you you don't need Bob Woodward to tell you. You know, no. that's crazy. Well, and my, my favorite thing is that it wasn't just one interview that inspired a book. It was multiple. It was mm. Donald Trump becoming best friends with the guy who took down Nixon. Like, do yep. you not? Can he needs better handlers? Like, plain and simple, because apparently they've lost control. If Donald Trump is allowed to just, and you know the uh, the Obama guys that do last pod on the uh, podcast. No, wait, that's a murder one. Uh, the guys who do uh, Pod Save America. Pod Save America. Yeah, yeah. They, they they were talking about how when they were working for Obama, Woodward walks in with the a classified folder and just says, I've got these. I want to take a look at them. Maybe something in that top secret cabinet can clarify this for me, but I'll just let you have it. And then walks out like you're dealing with Bob fucking Woodward. You don't become best friends and, and have girl talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Period. Yeah. Well, and I believe that it's one of the pod save America guys who's kind of coined the phrase. That's just like, it doesn't matter what the problem is. Donald Trump thinks that the, the, the solution is more Donald Trump. It's the it's the only thing he brings to the table. So when Bob Woodward put out his book two years ago, uh, Donald Trump was mad that he didn't get a chance to talk to Bob Woodward. And I'm not going to quote Donald Trump directly because I don't know what he said. But Donald Trump was mad that he didn't get a chance to set the record straight before Bob Woodward released his first book on the Trump presidency. So whoever his handlers were, they couldn't have stopped him. He was like, no. The problem is he didn't talk to Donald Trump and and the and and then Donald Trump's solution was talking to Bob Woodward for 18 hours or however long it was. Oh, he and it's that. Just, yeah. Yeah. It's like, hey, bro, like, uh, you know, and I, I'm not sure how much of uh, this this current conversation is useful for your uh, your original podcast idea. Do we do we have an agenda we need to get back on here? No, no, no. I think we've we've uh, I think we exhausted Afghanistan for now. Oh, I mean, I can keep going. There's there's more to talk about in Afghanistan. I, I mean, yeah, no, I, I, I was going to turn to TikTok. So, I mean, go ahead and uh, and go with Afghanistan. Who's buying TikTok now? Because I feel like I saw a headline that it will not be Microsoft. It's Oracle, Oracle. or Adobe. Oracle. All right. At least, so it sounds like, obviously I don't have the references in front of me, but it sounded like 
they're they're taking over one aspect of it, not just the U.S. as like the just the U.S. It sounded like they were taking over one part of it in the U.S. So I don't know if that's getting split between someone, but as of right now, the big name is Oracle. Yeah, Microsoft got denied. That's wild, but um, yeah, um, I don't I don't see Afghanistan, uh, you know, breaking the mold on the uh, the entertainment app um, market anytime soon. But uh, I don't know, man, like we could talk about how climate change is completely destroying Afghanistan as well. And like they know it. Afghanistan knows that their country's drying out. So I'd, I'd actually I'd love to hear about that. I remember a lot of our efforts when it came to, you know, maintaining water supplies um, in different areas. Uh, do you want to go ahead and, and talk about that? Because I actually had never really thought about um, combining the issues of cl climate change with Afghanistan. Yeah, you can actually you can actually dig up documents where Osama bin Laden is just like one of the reasons I'm popular is that these people in these poor countries around the world are 100% convinced that countries that have things like the fountains at the Bellagio in Las Vegas, and they know Nevada is a desert, but somehow they're able to get all of the water to the Bellagio. Like they, they deep down believe that the people like the United States and they're there that we're stealing from them. And it's, it's not, a, it's not always a true narrative because we're not, you know, taking buckets of water from Afghanistan and bringing it to America, but they they do see us as destroying the planet, and it's it's hard to argue, right? I know it is. I mean, when you're in that kind of desperate situation where you're, you know, I mean, how many? Um, I think at the start of of the war, you know, there were three million Afghan refugees um, outside of the country. I think a, a significant amount of them were in Pakistan, right? Um, but you have these people that have been, you know, they have had to leave their home either for war or uh, a lot of them were because of food. There, there wasn't mm -hmm. enough food for them. Uh, so they had to leave the country. Um, so when you're one of the few remaining and you're still struggling to eat, it's very easy to, to be susceptible to that kind of rhetoric. Um, and it, it leads to a lot of the things we see now. And absolutely, you know, and it's kind of sad because I think if you sat down with any American and said, how do you feel about their situation? I think everyone sheds a tear when, you know, arms of an angel comes on. Wait, that's for the dogs. Never mind. Um, yeah, that's it, the, Sarah uh, McLaughlin. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, when you see the, the commercial about the hungry kid in Africa, I think every American has some sort of emotional reaction to it. The problem is that we are so distanced from it and we don't see it often enough that just like any other issue that we ever have to deal with, if it's not within close proximity, we lose our ability to really focus on it and want to do more. Um, and so that side of the world doesn't get a lot of help. They don't get a lot of assistance and it, they're very easily turned against us when it comes to that. I never knew about that bin Laden speech. It's very interesting uh, to hear it's, that. Yeah. It's in his notes. It's, it's just, it, it was one of his kind of talking points about how the West is destroying the entire planet with their, with their greed. So but I mean, if even even if he pointed to something a little more logical, not the, uh, you know, Bellagio, but, to, you know, the auto industry, you know, here's a picture of American streets, those cars right there, those are are causing problems over here. And we don't get to appreciate any of that wealth because that's in their country. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's 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 something that is very easy to find in uh, bin Laden is that he despised our presence in places like Kuwait and Saudi Arabia because he saw what we were doing as stealing the natural resources from his home countries for our well-being 
and propping up, you know, uh, authoritarian leaders, which wasn't always true. Plenty of those authoritarian leaders came into their own on their own. Mm -hmm. But we're not going to convince somebody to the contrary. But bin Laden can feed into that false narrative in a heartbeat. He was able to. There was a there was a time where the the Muslim world, the most popular name was Osama. And the American people didn't know who Osama bin Laden was. Like, we went into this situation not understanding, once again, the human terrain. And we we sit in this situation not knowing what we want to do with that human terrain. So, uh... It's uh, it's not a good situation, but um, um, I don't know where were we, climate change. Um, we were, we were talking climate change, but you, you inspired me. Um, uh oh, you know the story about Clinton and o- Osama, right? Like the I don't remember the full part of it where it was. It was someone called the president and said we have him on a tarmac, and he didn't take action. I believe, yeah. Um, I think this was uh. This did have something to do with like we knew where one of his convoys was going or something. Mm-hmm. And we we knew that he was almost certainly responsible for the embassy bombings and the USS Cole at this point. And, um, uh, and uh, the ori- no, no, I'm sorry. He was not part of the original, not directly part of the original uh, World Trade bombing. He correct. Correct. It. Yeah. Yeah. Same ideology, mm-hmm. but the. It's 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 that unique space between involvement and encouragement, right. you know. But uh, uh, there might have been money on that one. I can't quite remember. But um, yeah, no, I, I'm, I, I, I don't remember the details of it. But there's there's definitely a story in which, uh, Bill Clinton could or could not have taken out Osama bin Laden. But like that 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 knife cuts both ways because. Whether or not you agree with everything that happens in the movie Zero Dark Thirty and and what we did to finally catch Osama bin Laden, like it wasn't like somebody walked into the White House on a Monday, said, I'm pretty sure Osama bin Laden's in this house, and we killed him on Tuesday. Like that information was sat on yeah. for for a very long time. And I don't I don't wanna I don't want to incorrectly say how long we knew knew uh air quotes knew how long bin laden had been there the amount of uh listening to the uh the commander the i guess admiral that was in charge of the seal team that went into to actually do that and then the um acting deputy director of the cia at the time the amount of time and the amount of checks that they put on that intelligence was just absolutely incredible um like i guess really you know you hear some parts of the story where I can think of situations when we were in country where someone would have said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And then it, you know, blew up in someone's face, right, that it wasn't fine. There were people where they weren't supposed to be, et cetera. Um, But to see how much fell into place there is just absolutely incredible. And I think one of the finer moments, I guess, of our intelligence community's work. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what's also... uh... A fun little uh, observation is that the entire time that people like you and I were searching for people like Osama bin Laden, he was he was constantly on the move. You know, you couldn't you couldn't pin him down in one location or the other. We we'd find dry holes where we knew he had been there, but he must have we must have just missed him. And I mean, I'll tell you, 
every time we catch these guys, they've uh, they've been sitting in the same basement for <laughs> for almost the, for almost the entire time. You know, it's like we, we're we're out there chasing ghosts. You know, and scumbag's been in his basement the whole time. Did you ever have that moment in your in your earlier days where you're like? I'm going to go read some old reports and I'm going to be the one that catches that little thing that, that someone missed. It's, it's silly. It's, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When you, when you know, when you know how much work goes into <laughs> making a report and you think you're going to crack some cold case in a country where you don't even speak the language and the guy who wrote the report doesn't even speak the language. Like there's, there's there's arrogance and then there's there's <laughs> it's like like yeah youthful hubris silliness yeah it's wild i don't even i, I can't even say it's youthful you know like it's naive it's definitely yeah. naive but the fact that you know half the people you know it ain't just young people who think that they're gonna track down a globalist elite pedophile ring I don't, I think we mentioned QAnon, like, but that's the thing, you know, just like, it's not, I can't say that the youth are to blame. And I think it is actually in uh, the New York Times podcast, uh, The Rabbit Hole, where millennials and Xennials and even Gen X are like, when we were kids, our parents told us not to believe everything that we read on the internet. And in the last couple of years, it's the opposite. It's the exact opposite. I'm telling my parents that that stuff on the internet isn't true. I... So, so, yeah. So stop picking on the youth. That's what I'm trying to say. Stop picking on the kids. Oh no, I I now have to to pick on my mom. I um I grew up conservative. <laughs> I I have um since changed my uh my views in a lot of ways. And I I'm having a discussion with my mom. She's like, I just don't get how you can align with people that you know want to you know eradicate white people look at the black lives matter platform and all that and i'm like okay let's have a talk and mm -hmm. and let's discuss what this isn't because my mom is on the internet enough that she's getting the crazy stuff right like in the in the real world that is fringe shit man like leftist socialist stuff like she uses leftist and i don't think she realizes that leftist is not a liberal and the majority of the democratic party is liberal but she has warped this internet brain into her real life politic lens. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's a problem, right? It used to just be that the internet was for cretins and scientists, and that was it. And then as the normies started to get more and more into the internet, um, they didn't know how to process. So my boomer mom and many boomer moms and dads like her are getting into the internet and they're stepping into these little pools but they don't know how to parse it. And I think that's where probably we get these older generation people um, getting into the QAnon shit. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. you see a, a lot of people engaging it. You get a lot of feedback, a positive feedback, when you um, start to, like, oh, really? I've never heard of this. That's encouraging. This, this person has been able to successfully set up a webcam and their background moves around. Whereas I'm not sure if anyone's still watching this webcam, but I, I was not able to get my leather bound books JPEG to load in my virtual background. I've been having a problem with that. I might need to talk to an IT professional. But um, the, uh, the, problem, the problem that I see is that young people have always been skeptical of what they read on the internet 
because we're just we're just used to it. It's just mm -hmm. always been the case. But if you introduce a generation that was used to Walter Cronkite coming on the TV and telling them that that's the way it is for 45 minutes or however long the news was, they, they hear things and it starts out as gospel. And it's every logical fallacy from coverage bias to confirmation bias to, you know, everything. It's all there. And they, they just they don't necessarily immediately have the critical thinking skills to go like, oh, well, just because it's convincing doesn't mean it's true. They just they, it's not their fault, but they just don't have it. And my in when it comes to that is like, you know what? I do think Walter Cronkite was a really good journalist and a great broadcaster. But if you look back, how many years did it take him to finally tell you that the Vietnam War wasn't going well? <laughs> and then, but that's the thing. And then suddenly they're like, oh, maybe I do need to be skeptical, you know? Um, you know, and, and like the, an intermediary between that, because I think you hit an amazing point. They heard the news. That was gospel. No, no ifs, ands, or buts. But then you get Fox News and CNN. And Fox News, I think, was the first. And, and Fox was, or at the very least, Fox was one of the first to see it for what it could be. You know, that this thing was created for moments like the JFK assassination, for 9-11, um, for right? That's what the 24-hour news network is kind of meant for. Um, mm -hmm. When you don't have it, you have to start sensationalizing. Journalism was already sensationalizing, but now you have to do it in a way that says, yeah, but they say this, we say this, and it appeals to you in a certain way, and then they start to gather that momentum, and then other organizations start to come in and counter it, and I think that that is, in many ways, created that divide and that openness to prep them for something crazy like QAnon on the internet. Right, right. And the problem with the 24-hour news cycle is that there's really only so much news that you can report on, and if you're doing good investigative journalism, you don't have something to say every single day. You develop an important story with nuance and background, and you bring it to a public that would like to know things. But if your job is to walk in front of a camera and talk about whatever's been going on over the last 24 hours, mm -hmm. you can only blame a newscaster so much for them immediately being like, well, I wonder what the president said on Twitter this morning, because the whole the whole the whole system's been hijacked. It, it's not it's not journalism anymore. It's just it's news generating news, net generating news. So, yeah, we talk about all the reasons that Trump won. Right. But I think that one of the main ones we can point to is the amount of coverage he got because Trump was a journalist's wet dream. He was oh, yes. the, the tweet machine who provided everything they could ever want. And it was very easy for him to dominate the news cycle because we had never had a presidential candidate who got anywhere near that. Sure, Ross Perot was crazy, said some some you know nut shit. Um, what's his mm -hmm. name? The guy from uh, Kentucky was, or no, his dad is from somewhere else. The the uh, younger one is from Kentucky. I can't remember who I'm talking about. Around from Paul business, yes, Ron Paul yeah, back in yeah. the day. Yeah, yeah. So Ron Paul, you know, there were a lot of good memes. It's happening and all that, right? Trump right. was that on every possible upper downer and everything in between why not make him get all the coverage yep well and when sound bites are are easy to consume like skittles you know the 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 news media turns into a skittle company and they just 
Like here, this is delicious. Here, try this one. Hey, this one tastes like purple. I, it doesn't taste like grape to me. It tastes like purple. <laughs> but uh, but like real journalism should taste like a meal. Like real journalism should be like, oh, well, this is interesting. Mm -hmm. I should have to, I should have to cook this. I should have to prepare this and digest this and understand why this is important to our society. But I mean, a fire tweet. I mean, that's easy to report on. It's easy to report fire tweets. So, yeah, you made you made a good comment earlier. You said, how long did it take Walter Cronkite to say the Vietnam War is bad? And if I remember correctly, it wasn't until the Pentagon Papers were published by The Washington Post. And I don't think so. No. OK, well, let me say this. Mm -hmm. I know that Walter Cronkite's uh, understanding of Vietnam changed when he went to Vietnam. Okay. And I'm I'm very confident that he went to Vietnam before the Pentagon. Yes. And this is this is the marker that I can delineate that with is is Walter Cronkite said that he didn't think the Vietnam War was going well because and Lyndon Baines Johnson responded to that like, well, if I've lost Walter Cronkite, I've lost middle America. Oh, okay. And yeah, and LBJ yeah. was and well Richard before. Nixon yeah. was the one who fought the release of the right. Pentagon Papers. Okay cool well that war went yeah that war went on for a while it did it really did yeah. uh, not 19 years but it did go on <laughs> thank god thank god yeah uh but to, either way to get to the the point where i was going is that what what impact do you think the uh afghanistan papers had um to go back to those because i don't see any kind of major fallout uh yeah like there was in vietnam uh, I think for the most part, Americans knew the Afghanistan war was dragging after 19 years with no end in sight, except administration after administration saying we're pulling out. Um, so what impact do you think they had, if any, in the long run? It And, you know, just because it was an analogy that I made already, the, the Pentagon Papers is a three course meal of food that pretty much every American is kind of already familiar with. And the American people are used to a news media that just feeds them Skittles. So like I actually did, I did have more than one journalist talk to me and be like, how do we punch up the release of these Afghanistan papers? This is literally one of the biggest revelations since the Pentagon papers. And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know how to make this sexy for you. Like, I'm sorry. Um, I think one of the, the bigger controversies, I guess, that happened during all these years is uh, is the Petraeus situation. Uh, not the affair, but... Um, oh. Uh, the... Uh, oh, damn. I'm sorry. Am I getting my generals wrong? I'm, I said the word sexy, and there was <laughs> sex involved in the Petraeus story. Uh, so There was. Um, I'm thinking of the, uh, the guy that was fired for his comments about Obama. That was McChrystal. Yeah, McChrystal. That's right. Um, how did you feel about that? Um, I uh, I read into that story quite a bit. And here's an amazing little aside. Uh, Michael Hastings was around General McChrystal for that long for him to drop his guard because of that enormous volcano that blew up in Sweden or yeah. whatever it was. I that volcano that. blacked out the skies and ruined air traffic. So Michael Hastings, who was really only supposed to get like an hour or two with uh, with Stan the Man McChrystal, 
was all of a sudden a part of the entourage for days, for days. And um, there was a there was one joke in it where McChrystal was like, who are you again? And he's like, I'm a journalist from the Rolling Stone. And McChrystal's like, oh, oh, yeah. We did that interview already, though. What do we know who's going to be on the cover of the issue? And Michael Hastings jokes like, yeah, Lady Gaga. And, she, <laughs> you know, everybody laughed because Michael Hastings seemed like kind of a funny guy. And he'd been around for a little while. But then sure enough, however long it took for them to uh, approve Michael Hastings story, Lady Gaga was on the cover of that issue of Rolling Stone. I wonder and Mike, <laughs> yeah. if it was done in like Gaga. Listen, uh, we need yeah. you. It's going to. No, trust me. Yeah. I know you're busy. Yeah. It's going to yeah. be a great joke. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna own Stan McChrystal. Like I, I, I think it's a coincidence. <laughs> Do you think that that was um, necessary? I don't. No, I mean, I, I didn't, I didn't see the value in it. Um, if there were other reasons to fire McChrystal, then yeah, maybe. And like, I, I have thought about that question for a long time. And like, a comparison that I can make is. When, when President Truman fired um, uh, Douglas MacArthur, it wasn't because Douglas MacArthur refused or neglected to salute the President of the United States when Harry Truman arrived. Like, Harry Truman went there to fire Douglas MacArthur because of blatant failures at their job. Mm -hmm. So, on one hand, I want to say that there were very good reasons that McChrystal was was given the boot. For example, I we talked about it earlier. I don't think the Hellman strategy worked. I think that um, it wasn't it wasn't Stanley McChrystal alone that did it, but I think that the Obama administration and definitely Biden, they knew that they were sold a, 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 a load of goods that that didn't didn't meet the meet criteria like I can't tell you that that's why the Obama administration fired Stanley McChrystal because the official story is and probably will stay that you know open insubordination to a journalist from the Rolling Stone of all people but um God. yeah it's crazy right because it's just like well if you're dumb enough to do this like how do I trust you with the other things you know so I I think that that's hard to say. Like, could if we if we were having outrageous success in Afghanistan, would we have tolerated what Stanley McChrystal did? Maybe, maybe, but I I can't say. So, you know, I wonder what the uh, the PR training was for uh, high level leadership after that. You know, we someone screws up, Ugh. like you know, you take certain training. You're like, oh, I know where that came from. Uh, this seems like a because I, I assume these people actually get some pretty high level PR training. You would hope so, right? You would think so, uh, at least <laughs> enough to say maybe don't go to a bar and share a few extra drinks with a journalist from Rolling Stones. That mm -hmm. might be the, mm -hmm. you know. But at the same time, too, we both know that General David Petraeus was doing far more than just having a few drinks with that female journalist. So, like. <laughs> yeah. I think we're assuming that there's training that there might not actually be training for. And we've both experienced enough military training to know that, you know, 
a lot of us are just clicking through the PowerPoint slides until it's time to go on our government scheduled break anyway. So, you know, when you're at that level, I imagine they assign a trainer like they should. Uh, this probably isn't happening. They probably have a PowerPoint, too. And they're clicking. They're like, all right. Yeah, that's fine. Maybe these people should get a little more attention from the government. All right. Well, and, you know, like, I'll tell you, actually, I mean, I was actually at Fort Huachuca when the Abu Ghraib scandal broke and journalists were figuring out that everyone responsible for what happened in Abu Ghraib, they all trained at Fort Huachuca. So they were in Fort Huachuca and, you know, we were we were dumb junior enlisted and it's not like we got some super intense uh how to handle the media uh, training, like, you know, the, the drill sergeants and the, the senior non-commissioned officers and so on and so forth spoke to everybody at Fort Huachuca who was in uniform and like, you know, read exactly what it means, like what your requirements are if you are in the military and you want to talk to journalists. Mm -hmm. But certain a, a certain tone of voice made it very clear that we definitely weren't supposed to do it, you know? So. Yeah, I, I remember some pretty explicit training that said, if you get a call like this, you say, I am not allowed to comment, and then you call mm -hmm. another person. Um, uh, so I have a, how familiar are you? This is kind of springing this on you. We didn't talk about this beforehand, but how familiar are you with Twitch? Um, I know that when I do my my boxing and pro wrestling and uh, comedy events, there always seems to be somebody in the audience putting it on their Twitch feed. I know that for sure. Okay. So Twitch is the live stream platform for like, it started with gaming primarily. But gaming, of course. Expanded yeah. to a whole bunch of things. Like right now, we're live on Twitch. Um, and so the like with this, you know, it's a YouTube's taking over live streaming, things like that. Um I I guess uh, my uh, so something that's happened is recruiters have decided they're going to create live stream platforms and they're going well, not platforms but they're going to join Twitch right and there are those few journalists in particular I believe one for the New York Times that has taken umbrage with this idea that military people would come here and uh, that would they would expose themselves or uh, to people under the age of 18 to recruit let alone there some of these people are ideologically opposed to the military in general um but do you see an issue with people um do you see an issue with people recruiting in a platform where a 13 year old is going to see it i no, because like i can't tell you exactly when it happened but the the military is all of a sudden a huge part of every NFL football game. Like I know there's the current controversies around the NFL right now or whatever, but I I feel like it was when I came back from Iraq and you know I was able to sit down and watch a football game that didn't have, you know, AFN clipping every commercial break and you know truncating certain portions of the broadcast, but I remember one time I was watching the NFL and it was it was a military parade. It was it was guys doing, you know, drill and ceremony and, and flicking the rifles around. And I was just like, I don't I don't remember this from when I was a kid. We didn't we didn't used to do this. This is new. And I'm like, yeah, I'm like, I remember cheerleaders. Yeah, sure. Of course. But I don't 
I don't remember this militarization of a sporting event. So like I, I would actually kind of flip the script and be like, the old saying was that your recruiter lied to you. I'm, I'm shocked that recruiters want to go on Twitch and have all of their words, you know, recorded. It doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't yeah it doesn't sound like recruiter modus operandi to me <laughs> no no especially i i don't know what your recruiter is like but mine got fired um oh. <laughs> yeah and so like i have a lot of issues with recruiters i think a lot of it stems from what will be my counter argument to a lot of the issues these people have First of all, I don't think exposure to the military is um, insidious, like the idea of joining the military. First of all, a lot of these recruiters are just answering questions that people ask in chat, and then they're playing video games with the U.S. Navy, U.S. Marine Corps, whatever, or Army and the Navy, I think, are the two. But they're, they're talking about that, right? Um, they're, they're talking about their experiences in the military. They're answering questions. Uh, there was this one thing where they did a giveaway, and it, you had to put your information in, obviously, because these recruiters want to get your phone number and address so they can send you stuff and call you. Um, but at the end of the day, recruiters don't give a shit about 13 year olds, 15 year olds. They don't care about, there's no, to my knowledge, uh, recruiting program that focuses on getting them early so that years down the road, they're ready. Um, they care about people that are 17 and 18 that can get there in the next, you know, now to six months from now, because they have harsh numbers to push. They have very stringent numbers, which leads to a lot of the bad practices that recruiters do telling people to lie telling people you know like you know hey you know, remember you had your tonsils out like don't tell them that uh things like that you know that does lead to problems but i don't think that just being exposed to recruiters talking about the military is problematic i think there are more kids getting an interest in the military playing call of duty at 13 that mm -hmm. will later affect their view on the military than just talking about your experience in the service yeah, and uh, what's actually quite brilliant about that observation is that to identify the short-sightedness of the recruiting efforts, right, those six-month, nine-month goals, when we're always going to have a military, you know, it's like, why is it that our military recruiters have such short-sighted goals? And, like, it's, it's, a, it's a direct parallel to why we're not able to leave or succeed in Iraq or Afghanistan. There are short-sighted goals. The, the old joke was that we haven't had a 12-year, 13-year, 14-year war. We've had 11 <laughs> wars that were all a single year long. You, you've heard that one. I can tell from your facial expressions. But it's so true because you think about – I think about my time in Iraq from 07 to 08 and then 08 to 09. Sure, I went from Fallujah to Ramadi. But for the most part at that period in the war um, – every province's issues were a little different but for the most part it was a kind of the same tempo um but that sentiment was exactly felt you know we we're going through the sheikh Alberisha time in 07 to 08 and then 08 to 09 is the um the governance centers trying to get them online and working properly um it feels like you have those little mission sects that are their own battles in themselves and um i i yeah, that's very poignant to think of it that way. Even in my own time in Afghanistan, uh, my first deployment was almost a year long. It was my longest time. I remember two very distinct feelings during that time. One focused more on, um, oh, fuck. Where is Helmand and Farah? 
or I'm sorry, where's Farah and Herat? What province is that? They're both southwest. Herat is its own province. Right. Yeah. Okay. And and Farah is, I believe, uh, we're gonna never do geography on on a on a Zoom meeting, but I, I believe. <laughs> Yeah, Farah is definitely north of Kandahar because every province is north of Kandahar. Yeah, so. yeah, you're right. I, uh, I I actually had to pull up a map because I have not looked at the map of Afghanistan in a hot minute. But no, um, I remember it's PTSD. Don't even don't even look at the map. I remember going to Herat, and I remember my focus, despite being in Herat and Farah, being shifted to Helmand. And when that yep. happened, it felt like a completely different period altogether yeah. uh i'd say the same for for when you and i were there together um you know we were in when we were in uh um oh my goodness if i'm i'm gonna misremember this you can just say kandahar province yeah so when we were in uh, where we were in kandahar but then moved to kandahar proper um that felt like a completely oh, different time period oh that did happen to you that didn't happen to me oh okay. <laughs> you know, yeah no yeah, if whenever I round up at uh, what we are referring to as Kandahar proper, Kandahar proper, I was like, get me on the next helicopter away from the flagpole. I cannot be around all of these people who have no idea what's going on and who are somehow also in charge of this. So anywhere else, any anywhere else. So, yeah. Oh, sorry, cat. Oh, but um, <laughs> anyway, so two two comments on that. Yeah. Uh, the shift shoot. What were we talking about? I was trying to cover for the fact that your headphones fell off there. Uh, we were just talking we were about... talking about recruiting at one point. Yes, yes, we were talking about recruiting, and then we talked yeah. about the feeling of different little like w mini wars with one year war. wars. Yeah, yep. myopic, uh, just a myopic uh, view of the war, and um, uh, that's actually kind of something very interesting to look at about why we were successful in the Cold War but we couldn't be successful in the Iraq and the Afghanistan hot wars is because we knew that whatever we did in the seventies, whatever we did, in, or you should, I should really go back further than that. But like everything we did in the sixties to counter the Soviets mattered in the seventies, everything that we did in the seventies mattered in the eighties. You know, we understood what that long war meant. Mm -hmm. But you, you throw you throw a unit into a hot war like Iraq or Afghanistan, and you're like, hey, you get to you get to come home in a year. Like your goal is to come home in a year, and that also differentiates from World War II. You know, World War II, like you you were in World War II until we won. Like that right. was the plan. Yeah, and and then you know it come, it goes back to that pullout strategy, right? Like it's very difficult to blow to pull out. You know. 100,000 troops that are all embedded. Sure, we can pull back to bases, but that takes time. And then it's like mm -hmm. we have the conundrum of when do we officially get everything gone? But in the Cold War, it was a lot of clandestine operations. It was a lot of, um, you know, that's a little easier, I think, to size down. You don't have the, the public perception of all that. And it's pretty easy to say when the Cold War ends. It's when the regime stops being a threat to you, period. And what's important, yeah. And it's not like we defeated the Soviet Union and then base, housed soldiers in every Russian province. That didn't happen, no. you know. And and you know, I just kind of brought up the Cold War because we're if we're going to compare the recruiting efforts to the global war on terror, active warfare efforts, we might as well throw in a comparison to Cold War efforts as well. And 
and which which missions are myopic, which missions we look at from a short-sighted perspective, and which missions that we're like, no, we need to be in this in the long haul. Mm-hmm. Like, there's nothing wrong with there being a cartoon where G.I. Joe consistently defeats Cobra that can encourage kids to join the military. So, yeah. That's my view as we go back to that is that I don't think there's I also don't think there's anything inherently wrong with the military like you don't have to be a trigger puller. There are plenty of jobs um, and there are multiple services where you can take those jobs. Um, This idea that you're being brainwashed or groomed by being exposed. I remember going to the air show. My dad was really big in the military into the military. He never served, but he, um, he he would take me to the Cleveland air show. And that was always a fun time. Got to see the Blue Angels. And I remember always walking by the Marine booth. And they would say hello. They'd shake your hand. They'd say you want to try a pull-up and then give you a lanyard. And that's it, right? Because they literally, legally, cannot do shit with you. You can I, – I used to send them stuff because they'd send T-shirts and hats. So the military got my number seven way to Sunday because <laughs> I wanted the free stuff they were giving. But it didn't implant this uh, seed – that I was going to be in the military. Their their material didn't indoctrinate me in a dangerous way. Um, I actually was considering just going to Ohio State to become a history teacher, and then I happened to want to get out of class in 10th grade one time, and so I took the ASVAB because that was the earliest you could take it. I did it. I got out of my one period, so it felt like I had four free periods, and then um, and that was it, right? But then when I turned 17, they started calling me. Now, if I said, hey, please don't call me, they would have stopped, right? Um, and so the air force did actually the air force, uh, I, I went and I, they said, Hey, let's talk. We'll be in your school. I said, okay. We went and had a chat and I said, I want to be a fighter pilot. And they said, well, we are the air force, but, and, and then they said, what's your vision? I said, 2025. And they said, you can fly cargo. And I said, fuck that. I wanted to be top gun, which obviously top guns, Navy, whatever. Um, (laughs) but, uh, so that was it. I said, never mind. I'm not interested never heard from the air force again then the fucking marine guy called me up and and uh and my mom wanted to have me do chores so i was like i'm gonna get out of these chores mom let's go talk to the recruiter and that silver-tongued motherfucker had me up at meps that night but regardless yeah oh yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) mom's sitting there right next to me like he's gonna get what free education after what's that what's his job gonna be oh that's so cool jared do you like that i'm like yeah mom i like that like it was a you know but the point being, it wasn't those Navy fucking pamphlets that I was getting as a 13-year-old so I could get the Navy hat that got me into that. Exposure I got, I, to that, I don't feel is inherently evil. I got some bad news for you. You're saying that they didn't secretly indoctrinate you, but you're not actually providing any evidence that they didn't secretly indoctrinate you because you, you you said it yourself. <laughs> you said it yourself. It only took that silver-tongued individual one day. Like, well, it sounds like they laid the groundwork somehow. He described our field and showed me some really cool <laughs> fucking IR videos. That's all it took. Okay. Okay. He was like, so there's a recon guy down there and he's doing, you know, this, that, and the other, and he's pointing a laser and I'm like, Okay, okay. So it wasn't a systematic indoctrination of a young man at air shows and Marine Corps booths. Up it was the IR video. Yes, that no, was- up until that point, military wasn't genuinely a consideration. I seriously went to that recruiting office just to get uh-huh. the fuck out of chores. And, right, then, right. and then he just happened to be a really good recruiter. He was a, awesome. the youngest centurion in the Marine Corps. I don't know if Army tracks that, but centurion is oh. 100 recruits in a year. 
And yeah. <laughs> well, if any of you recruiters on Twitch are hearing this conversation, upload IR videos, show us, show us your lasers. That's, that's what gets them hooked these days. Dude, there, there are still days nowadays where I'll watch IR videos and be like, I'm, <laughs> I'm not 33 yet. I think I can go do that. Oh, oh man. All right. All right. Well, you never had, you've never had since leaving that moment of like, maybe I go back. Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I did my thing. I did what I planned on doing. I always had a 10 year plan. I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And I got to the end of the 10 year plan and I was like, Oh, <laughs> I don't know what to do now, but going back hasn't necessarily like, I'll still, I'll still do analytical work or whatever. But um, like the full blown like, oh, let's kick in the door and interview somebody. I don't. I have. <laughs> I wow. have. I have, I have no interest in any of that. I I support a more diplomatic approach. I don't know. I don't know what to tell you here. Quarter the IR time. video. Yeah. yeah, the IR video actually never worked on me. Well, we'll we'll tell my recruiting story some other time. But um, I don't know, man. Check your notes. Do you have anything else on these topics that we yeah. uh that we need to talk about? I think that's about it. I, I want to say uh, I really appreciate you coming on, being the guinea pig, the first interview, the first episode. Um, I, I wish you had like some sort of social platform or projects. Do you want to do you want to plug one of your projects? Do you have any of your wrestling things? I know that we've obviously have issues. Yeah, with hey, COVID. man, we're, we're in the middle of a pandemic, man. I got I know. <laughs> no, when the time comes, uh, the UCW Zero professional wrestling based out of Salt Lake City, Utah, will take the world by storm once again. The, uh, the Flash Academy, FKF Productions, will bring Utah, if not the entire world, some of the greatest fighters you will have ever seen. And um, I'll try to put on a car show as soon as I'm allowed to do that. Those the, Oh, and a beard competition. I might actually have a beard competition coming up soon. All of my comedy events are completely screwed up right now. Um, but uh, I, I think I have an 8 o'clock date in which we're going to go watch episode 3 of The Boys. So I'm going to let you go. Awesome. Well, hey, I really appreciate it, guys. Go check out Levi Leaves' cool stuff. And uh, we will see you next time on the soon-to-be-named podcast. You all have a good night. That's a good name, by the way. Later. <laughs> Later.